Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I went to see Bob Seger. <gasps> the Silver Bullet That's so Band. awesome. Jack Gems and I went to go see them. And at one point he was like, what's that song? And it's like, just about like doing it all night long. We've got tonight, I think. Oh, got and it. he's Wonderful. like, this next one's my mom's favorite song. And he was serious. <laughs> oh boy. Maybe she didn't pay attention to the lyrics. Yeah, could be. Or maybe his mom is dirty. Maybe she's a freak a leak. She loves sex. Exactly. That's what we're saying. <laughs> Alex is like TLDR. She loves sex. Yeah, let's get to it. I'm Alex Higley. And I'm Lindsay Hunter. And, and I'm, I'm a writer. writer but... Welcome to I'm a Writer, but today we have Isaac Butler, who is the co-author with Dan Coyce of The World Only Spins Forward, which was named one of the best books of 2018 by NPR. His writing has appeared in New York Magazine, Slate, The Guardian, American Theater, and other publications. Butler holds an MFA in creative nonfiction from the University of Minnesota and teaches theater history and performance at the New School and elsewhere. He lives in Brooklyn, and his new book is The Method, How the 20th Century Learned to Act. Welcome, Isaac. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be on my favorite podcast. Yay. <laughs> so nice since you have your own podcast for you to yeah. say that. I know. Yeah, fuck that podcast. I'm a writer, but is where it's at. Uh, I mean, it was really, you know, when you all started this thing, it was really my like comfort listen during the pandemic. To be like, <gasps> ah, yes, the human spirit will endure and oh, things man. are hard, but we're also making things. And it was, yes. it was just, it was very important to me. So I'm very, very happy to be a guest on it. Oh, thanks, bud. I think that's our highest aspiration is to be a comfort listen. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, we can't have any others. So sure. <laughs> <laughs> and your cool merch. You've already got the cool merch. So that's the only true. thing that's left. Yep, that's the only that's thing it. that's left. Yep. Um, so should I read a little? Is that? I would love that. That's great. Okay. So uh, for those of you who are maybe not familiar with the story of the method, it actually started in uh, Russia. Uh, the story starts in Russia in the late 19th century with the founding of a theater called the Moscow Art Theater. And it's founded by these two guys, uh, Konstantin Stanislavsky and Vladimir Nemirovich Donchenko. And um, 
a few years into running that theater, Stanislavski has this kind of crisis of faith in acting, and he starts creating this thing called the system that eventually comes over to the United States and becomes, over the course of the Great Depression, becomes known as the method. The group of Americans uh, take it over and kind of adapt it. And this sort of takes place in between those those two times. Um, the only other name you need to know is I'm going to talk about this guy, Meyerhold, who is like Stanislavski's prodigal son, who becomes the kind of the major experimental theater director, where Stanislavski's mostly doing like naturalism and stuff like that. It only took four years for Meyerhold to go from leading man at the Moscow Art Theater to outcast. By 1900, he was complaining about the company's simple appeal to beauty that he felt marked and limited the MAT style. During the disastrous run of the play In Dreams in 1901, Olga Knipper accused Meyerhold of encouraging the audience to boo the production. By then, he had made himself so irritating that the accusation was plausible, and Stanislavski, ever afraid of direct conflict, refused to intervene to protect him. In 1902, Meyerhold was pushed out during a restructuring of the company. Company, and he took Stanislavski's assistant Sainan and several other actors with him to launch the Fellowship of the New Drama in Ukraine. During the two years of his Ukrainian exile, Meyerhold directed a staggering 140 productions and played 44 roles. He helmed plays by Gogol, Ibsen, Chekhov, Hauptmann, and Shakespeare, but he was particularly enamored with the Belgian symbolist playwright Maurice Maeterlinck. Meyerhold began rethinking the ideas of acting technique he had inherited from Nemirovich and Stanislavski. He saw no reason for their innovations to be the end of the story of acting in Russia. There were always, as his character Treplev had said, in the seagull, new forms waiting to be discovered. By 1905, Stanislavski had come around to Meyerhold's feelings about the Moscow Art Theater's work. He was growing increasingly desperate to solve the artistic problems that ate away with, at him, and he was intrigued by the young man's experimental breakthroughs in acting technique. The two cooked up a scheme for a laboratory for theater in Moscow. Dubbed the theater studio by Meyerhold, it would create space for the young director to develop what he termed stylization. Stanislavski loved the challenge to his own working methods. He booked Meyerhold a barn to work in over the summer, and he bought and renovated a theater in Moscow in which they could premiere The, Den the Death of Tintagales, a Maeterlinck play originally written for marionettes. Stanislavski even hired one of his harshest critics, Valerie Bruisov, a man who, in an essay titled Unnecessary Truth, portrayed the Moscow Art Theater's brand of realism as a series of empty conventions as the Moscow Art Theater's literary advisor. But Meyerhold's methods bewildered his untrained actors. In September, the members of the theater studio wrote a letter to Stanislavski informing him that our artistic work in the theater is stuck at an impasse and that there is inadequate preparation for us to be able to open the theater. The opening was pushed back to October 1905, but before the theater studio could open, a general strike broke out in Moscow. It turned out that 1905 was a terrible time to try to launch a new experimental theater. The year began with a strike in St. Petersburg that led on January 22nd to the army's violent suppression of a march on the Tsar's Winter Palace. More than a thousand protesters lost their lives. Strikes flared up all over the nation in response. As Russia suffered humiliating defeat in the Russo-Japanese War, the strikes turned to mutinies, including the one immortalized in Sergei Eisenstein's film Battleship Potemkin. Over the summer, peasant revolts swept the countryside. On October 7th, Nicholas II issued the October Manifesto, which guaranteed the essential foundations of civil freedom, based on the principles of genuine inviability of the person, freedom of conscience, speech, assembly, and association, and created the Duma, 
or lower house of parliament. But this edict was issued under duress and everyone knew it. The protesters continued their resistance to the czar and the security state continued its repression of them. In Moscow, the day after the October manifesto was issued, the Okhrana, the secret police, beat a Bolshevik agitator named Nikolai Bauman to death with a metal pipe. Bauman's funeral on October 20th metamorphosed into a massive left-wing demonstration, and the Black Hundreds, a far-right czarist paramilitary group, met it with extreme force. Maxim Gorky described the events of October, ironic detachment masking his white-hot rage. They are laying into the students under the supervision of the secret police, but the Black Hundred are not too good at picking the right victims. Now the secret police has released the addresses of various revolutionaries so that they can be violently victimized in their own home. During all of this, Stanislavski refused to stop working. According to Leonid Lenidov, a member of the Moscow Art Theater Company, it was increasingly difficult to get around outside. All movement put one's life at risk, and yet the company continued rehearsing, even as Tverskaya Street bristled with mounted patrols, sheriffs, policemen, and security officers. Shooting began outside the theater, but Stanislavski kept going. Someone piped up, Konstantin Sergeyevich, please stop the rehearsal or we won't be able to get out of the theater. Stanislavski, unfazed, responded, can't you wait a minute, and kept on reciting his lines, even as armed men breached the theater's gates, occupied its front yard, and declared that no one would be able to leave. Finally convinced of the moment's urgency, Stanislavski and his actors escaped out the back, weaving through the rabbit warren of Moscow's alleyways and side streets to evade detection. At around this time, Meyerhold and Stanislavski's theater studio finally premiered its first production. Meyerhold's working methods, so compelling in a small barn, could not translate to a 1,200-seat space when performed by unseasoned actors of indifferent gifts. But Stanislavski had spent so much money on the theater studio, one biography estimates it at half his personal fortune, that he had to open the death of Tintagalis and take the reputational hit of its failure in order to make back what he could on ticket sales. The theater studio did not stay open for long, however. The civil unrest all around them made it too unsafe to work. Stanislavski shuttered the studio. Nemirovich and Stanislavski cut the Moscow Art Theater season short, and Meyerhold once again left town. A year that was meant to bring renewal and breakthrough to both Stanislavski and Russian society had ended in failure and disappointment. By the end of the year, 13,000 people laid dead, at least 3,000 of them Jews murdered in pogroms. As for Stanislavski, he had thought in 1898 that he had solved the artistic problems that had haunted him all his life. Instead, he had only opened the door to new ones, ones he had no idea how to solve. All he could do was hope that 1906 would bring him closer to his goals, that he could perhaps repair his relationship with Nemirovich and improve the work he was doing. As he wrote in My Life in Art, both he and the Moscow Art Theater were at a crossroads, we did not know where to go or what to do. The only way out was to make a journey abroad. Damn. Thank you. <laughs> Thank uh, you. I love that you read that part because one of the things that I kept thinking about as I read was how the hell did the method become so influential having failed over and over and over again? It's almost like that's its true essence is the failure of it, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, Lee Strasberg told lots of people shortly before he died. Lee Strasberg is the person who codified the method. And then uh, he did not found, but he ran the actor studio for many decades and sort of turned it into the Vatican, or I guess, since he and I are both Jews, the high temple of the method. <laughs> um, uh, you know, at the end of his life, he would tell anyone who interviewed him to be like, no one actually understands me. And no one actually understands 
the method and how it works. There's no one who has the full knowledge of it. You know, like he, he really believed that. And um, every time Stanislavski, I mean, I, the book has lots of big successes, but they're almost always immediately followed by these sort of catastrophic failures. Um, I think the positive spin on it is that both the system and the method and everything that comes out of Stanislavski is always evolving and should always be evolving. I mean, that's part of what's exciting and enriching and beautiful about it. But it's also because it tends to attract relentless perfectionists mm -hmm. who can never leave well enough alone. Mm -hmm. And then they go sort of so deep into it and get so extreme with it that it, it's inevitable that it's going to fail. Mm -hmm. When you say that, are you thinking about Jared Leto? <laughs> I am not thinking about Jared Leto because God damn it, that man is not a method actor. And if there's one thing you can take away from my book, because there's an explicit paragraph about him in it, it is that that is not what the method is. But you know, the, the, I don't want to be a pedant about it. I mean, that's what people think the method is a part, part of what my book is doing is trying to chart. How do we get from this one thing to this other thing that is, yeah. is sort of similar. It's similar in some ways, but in others couldn't be more diametrically opposed to it. And, you know, how did the idea have that journey is I think a fascinating and funny story. Mm -hmm. It's funny too, because where you end up at the end of the method is almost an understanding that Stanislavski couldn't really come around now and take hold in the same way because of what you posit that, you know, it's, it's a, it's a marketplace now, as opposed to a place that would be, you know, fertile for a kind of culty type figure to really take yeah. hold and, and, and move on. And it's so interesting how, despite that being the truth, um, the tendrils of what have been passed on, passed on by culty figure to culty figure still are pervasive on into the future, as, as you say, it, it's amazing how the, the hold that it has on acting. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's not just acting, it's how we think about storytelling and you know, right. like what a character is. I mean, you're both um, excellent novelists. And so you've had to come up with many characters. I mean, I, I'm, I'm actually kind of interested as you read the book, where you sort of think like, oh, this is an idea of a character. Like, I didn't realize that it's sort of like, like, the, did you find connections between sort of how the idea of character and writing is evolving in the book and sort of what you've been taught or what you do in your own work? I was thinking about how I, I watched, it was probably like on E! Entertainment Television years ago. Someone say, maybe it was Gary Marshall. I can't remember who said, well, I've always thought that in order to be a good actor, you have to be a good writer. And Julia Roberts is a great writer. And it was kind of... <laughs> And it was kind of talking about how um, she always comes up with these, you know, these back, these elaborate backstories for her characters. And that's how she gets into the role. Um, but there's that moment where you're talking about De Niro and James Dean. Um, yeah. And it says De Niro, by contrast, declared that acting is not about neurosis. It's about the character and about doing that first, the tasks of the character. Adler instructed that a character's task problem mattered only if it could translate into physical action. And I, that to me is the perfect distillation into you're writing, you're writing, you're writing, and you're just writing a bunch of bullshit. And then, then there's the thing that actually matters, right? In, in your novel, in your short story, in whatever you're writing. I saw a lot of connection between what they were trying to do and what we try to do in writing. Um, you know, like uh, realism and naturalism and, um, you know, like tapping in and trying to find what matters and, mm -hmm. um, 
yeah, I, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that because it seems like you're someone who has studied acting and you're someone who writes, you know, right. like, do you feel like there's that natural crossover? Oh, I, I really do. I mean, I've long wanted to teach a class. I don't know if teach is even the right word. Have a gathering <laughs> that's about, you know, like um, a studio, dramatic, if you will, a studio, if you will. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. That's that's focused on dramatic action and prose writing and Ooh. and sort of taking the tools of dramatic structure and playwriting, which is basically Stanislavski and Stella Adler. I mean, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the task problem, which is the thing the character needs that results in action, which is the thing they do to get their needs. And then you can literally line those actions up and you get what's called the through line of action, which is the journey of the character. It's another way to think about it. Um, and, and the way they talk about text and how text works, I actually think it's very, very useful for prose writing. I mm-hmm. found it... I found those tools very useful for writing this book, in fact, you know, in thinking about structuring this story, for example, you know, I just kept because it's a big story. It's a hundred years of history. It's on two continents. There's a lot of characters. There's a lot of stuff left out, a lot, a lot of stuff left out. So it's like, how do you... decide what stays in and and the two things that really helped me figure that out one of them were was uh well the method is the protagonist no individual person is the protagonist the method is the protagonist it's the method story and treating it like it's it's the method's biography um but the other was to always focus on where the problems are not in a cheap way but to always just be like well where's the problem where's the next big problem in this story you got to go to there and so what what does the reader need to know to understand that problem because if you go from problem to problem to problem there's a natural kind of narrative momentum that builds up mm-hmm. in a natural narrative tension because there's like yeah a there's a natural facts. cliffhanger kind of kind of yeah. set up in that way for sure yeah. sorry keep going and, and luckily because as you pointed out there's so much failure in here yeah. there's a lot of fucking problems yeah. and sometimes they're going to succeed you know that like one of the problems is uh-oh if if this production of the seagull isn't ready it's going to literally murder anton Chekhov. like if this doesn't work he's going to be so embarrassed he's going to die like that's a problem and, well, that they, that, and they then conquer that of course um but you know uh, <laughs> Um, and so just trying to invest those problems with enough dramatic weight that it, that it pulls the reader along so they can Mm -hmm. get from sort, because there's a lot of facts for them to know. There's a lot of complicated theory that I'm trying to explain. Mm -hmm. I think I do a pretty good job of explaining it in a way that it doesn't weigh you down too much. And it's like, you know, you just got to get to the problem, get to the problem there. Um, a really good example of that actually came from a note that uh, our mutual friend, Catherine Nichols, who was my first reader, gave me, where there's the um, chapter where Stanislavski has the crisis that leads to the system, which is actually the chapter I just read from. And that chapter originally just proceeded chronologically. You know, there's like a three-year time jump, and then it just proceeded chronologically. And Catherine was like, it's got to start with the crisis and then flash back. And just, Mm -hmm. and then because you have to just start with, we're in the shit, you know, like you have to just smash cut to Stanislavski's chain smoking and writing a book and his wife doesn't understand what he's doing. My God, that's that's one of the the actual start. That's one of the funniest parts of the book when she's like, I I can't think of what the line is, but like the way he spends his days is so odd. He spends his days in such an odd manner or something. It's just (laughs) like, he's just sitting in a room. He goes to Finland to try to solve this crisis. So he goes to Finland. He has all of his journals shipped to him in Finland. And then he just sits in a room, chain smoking, reading journal articles and trying to pose in front of a mirror. I mean, it's very odd, but yeah. So she was like, you have to start. And that was the, that was really an eye opening moment of like, oh, whenever possible 
possible. I have to like, you know, get to the thing, not all the bullshit that leads up to the thing, mm-hmm. you know? That that's brilliant. Cause I, I, it's so easy to spin your wheels in that, right? It's just so easy to, well, you have to know this before you can know this. Cause that's yeah. how it happened. And you have to understand. And um, we talk on here a lot about touching the bear, which is based on an essay that was in lit hub um, about this woman trying to write a story where the character gets close to the bear, but then the bear walks away. And then that's, and it's very dissatisfying. Nothing really happens. And then she realizes I should try to make my character touch the bear. And then, then the story opens, you know, breaks wide open. Um, so you were touching the bear. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or an- bear. another, another uh, version of that is getting uh, that we, that, you know, comes from the Simpsons is getting to the fireworks factory. Right. <laughs> right? You know, cause yeah. there's, there's that, uh, you know, you want to get to the fireworks factory. And mm-hmm. in fact, if you get to the fireworks factory, you can then always flash back to get the other stuff the reader needs to know. Sure. You know sure. what I mean? Like, but then they know what the stakes are. Like if you're just telling the reader facts, and they have no understanding of the stakes of why you're telling them that or why it's important. It, it makes sense to me that they then like kind of check out a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, cause you haven't made it clear to them why it's important mm-hmm. or you haven't made it clear to them why it's important to these characters. Cause that's the other thing is that like some of this stuff I think does not feel objectively like it's not, it doesn't feel life or death objectively to maybe me. Do you know what I mean? But this was life or death to these people. Mm-hmm. This was the only thing they cared about. And so, you know, um, if you can get the reader to kind of see it through their eyes a little bit, then I think that, you know, you can build the stakes out of that. Mm-hmm. That makes me think of two things I wanted to ask you. Um, sure. I won't give you a two-parter. I'll ask them separately here. But the first was... Is either of them more of a comment than a question? <laughs> <laughs> well, you have to wait and see. Um, all right, all right, all right. So, paragraph to paragraph, this book is very informationally dense, and yet it moves and is very clear. And like you're saying, a lot of what you're, it seems that you're trying to do, is make clear distinctions and show a clear movement throughout, and take a reader through who may not be necessarily familiar with any of this like myself, I was wondering what the meter you used to decide what was too much information paragraph to paragraph. And if it was related to your understanding of the stakes related to what the problem is on a chapter level, was that something that guided you or how were you kind of measuring that? Because it seems like such a fine balance. And like you've already said, you had to leave a lot out. Yeah. I mean, some of that's intuitive. Some of that is notes from Catherine or my friend, Mark Armstrong, who was then my second reader or my editor, Ben, who I was in conversation with throughout writing this and is Ben Hyman at Bloomsbury is incredible as my second book with him. And we're really, he's really good at being like, this is too much, you know, um, the original, but part of it was also like, look, the original draft of this book was 170,000 words long. Right. When, I, when I finally put Fuck. it all together, it was 170,000 words long. And I remember uh, I was going into tape working back when Ruman, who's been a guest on this show, was the guest host, was the co-host with me. And I was like, Ruman, I finally put the book all together and uh, it's 170,000 words long. And he just looked at me. He was like, fuck man that is so long what are you gonna do <laughs> and I was like right I can't turn it so you know I had a month until the revised due date because <laughs> I you know there was an extension involved uh uh and I just knew I had to cut it down and so you know um 
You did that in a month? I was just going to say a month. Like uh, It might have like, been two months. It might have been six still, weeks. Still, months, still. But a month is two months in this situation, I feel like. Yeah, yeah. It was just like, I just w- went through and I read it out loud. And every time I got bored, I looked at what I was getting bored by. And I just kept thinking like, this is too much or this is not. There were a couple moments where I was like, oh, actually it needs a little bit more here or whatever. Um, and then uh, when I turned it into Ben, he had some, he wrote me this beautiful letter where he was like, it still needs to be, you know, it, it needs one more pass before I can do a line edit. And, you know, this is the book that you are, he did this beautiful thing where he was like, I'm going to, you know, this is the book you are writing. And he told it to me, you know, hmm. which I had some idea, but he was able to articulate it back to me. Like, this is what you're doing. And these are the, this is uh, the recurring thing you're doing. That's like really amazing. Let me show how, and then th- these are some devices you're using too often. I really love ekphrasis i just love it it feels so good to write and there was so much in it like anytime a play is mentioned i'm like let me give you let me put you in the scene you know he was Mm. like you really need to pick your battles on that and you know he had a couple of other general notes he's like get us as 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 close to the the core of artistic making as possible was Mm. the big was the big thing and so i think a lot of it just came was was also through that process you know um and so and then you know it needed an intro and afterward you know like i cut it down to maybe 125 130 oh, you cut a lot and then, wow. was, and then there was an intro and afterward put in after that and so you know there was just there was like a lot of stuff and i just kept thinking like my mom always jokes that she won't finish a book if it's over 400 pages long and i just kept thinking like my mom's got to finish it my mom's got to finish it <laughs> she's my um, people yeah yeah exactly um, I love that you said that you did a read through completely out loud um, because I feel like that's so important. And and it really comes through as you were reading the piece that you read out loud. It's so propulsive. It's so enticing and so fun to hear, um, which again, makes sense as an actor writer like yourself to, to make something that's fun to say. Um, do you do that every time? Do you, do you always do a read through when reading it out loud to yourself? Well, um, that wasn't possible with the world only spins forward because it was an oral history. And so it's just other people. It's just quotes. Do you know what I mean? There's no, so you no weren't quotes. editing them. Quotes. God. Um, no, no, no. I mean, there's editing going on with it. Yeah. There's editing going on within that, but you know, Dan Coyce and I were working on these giant Google doc files and we were emailing each other a thousand times a day and it just, that process wouldn't work for that. Um, yeah. but, uh, yeah, I read, I read most things. Well, not like the, the the quick things I write for Slate, I don't always read out loud, but I should. Really, I should read everything out loud. And every time I do, I think it gets better. And that's a thing that obviously like appeals to me a lot as someone who used to be an actor and a director and is used to the text being spoken out loud. Um, I think you can fall in, I think there's a trap within it, uh, which is that the text that loses its literary feel. Do you know what I mean? Like it, mm-hmm. it gets, it becomes, because spoken text and prose, obviously they're just very different things on some level. And so you do have to watch out for that, but I think you always learn so much when you read it out loud. I am not one of those writers who is able to like go through a sentence and then like say all the vowel sounds in the sentence and then like, oh, let me rearrange this so that, you know, the plosives, like I can't do that. I, I could read a, I could read Shakespeare and I can tell you how Shakespeare's doing it to a student or whatever, but I, I can't do that with my own writing. But reading it out loud, like a lot of that stuff starts to come intuitively, yeah. I feel like. Yeah. Um, and I know a lot of novelists who read their books out loud. Mm-hmm. Um, I read this I one do. out loud. I, I, you do? Do you, Higgs? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't yeah. you, Lindsay? 
I don't do it every time. I don't. That's a, that's a little surprising to me because how much you too. love to read. I know. You're well, such a good reader, and oh you're, you're, you know, having listened to uh, one of your books, I listened to "Eat Only When You're Hungry." I listened to instead of you know while walking awesome. chili, and um, <laughs> you know it sounds so good out loud. There's such a intensity to it that is so uh, feels so good. Oh, that's loud. awesome. No, I think, I think, you know, like a lot of the times when I'm writing, it's, it's in, it's in during times when I have to be quiet. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I read it out loud. I basically read it out loud every time I did a big, a big revision. I read it out loud as part of that revising process until once you get to copy editing, there's like everything's in track changes. And then it's like the the text becomes incomprehensible. (laughs) Do you know? Like, it's just like, what the hell is that? But the other thing I was so interested to talk to Isaac about was because we don't do a lot of nonfiction on the show, I was struck by the moments when the POV was very deeply focalized through whoever, whether it be Stanislavski or Nemirovich. And there's a moment pretty early in the book on page 17. I'm just going to read this paragraph because I want to ask you about it. Do I sneak in some free indirect? I snuck in a little free indirect. Well, yeah, I want to ask you about that. Uh, But for now, there was only the excitement and joy of the work immediately ahead. It took a full day for Nemirovich to return to his country house in the Ekaterinoslav steppes. When he returned home, it was nearly dawn, his farmhouse silent. As he walked through it with his wife, describing the wondrous events of the last two days, one of his dogs approached them and licked his hands. He remembered all this decades later. It was as if his mind knew his life was changing and had opened to swallow every detail. It's just, it's a beautiful paragraph and it stopped me. And I was so curious to know because anyone who has this book in front of them knows how extensive the notes are and how absolutely extensive the research was. Is that something that you encountered in a journal of Nemirovich's or is it something that you had enough information about where he grew up to kind of draw the scene faithfully in your mind? And if it's neither of those things, I just want to hear about what your kind of personal code is in those moments that are so that adds so much to the book. Um, It's in his memoir. His he has an out of print memoir in English called "My Life in the Russian Theater," and um, it's really wonderful and charming. I mean, he's a complete egomaniac, and he tries to be self deprecating, but it comes across. It's like the self deprecation that only an egomaniac can do. Where he's like, (laughs) I mean, my my plays won many prizes, but they they weren't good. You know, it's like that kind of thing. You know, Um, and he describes that scene, and so I'm re describing. I'm not quoting him, but I am actually paraphrasing he the dog licking his hand is a detail that that comes from there and then that last line about his mind opening up it's just like well he's writing this i mean stanislavski's dead by the time he's writing this so he's writing this i think in the you know 1940s if i remember correctly i mean it's it's almost half a century has passed since this happened and it's like oh well then you know like how do you remember these details half a century later well maybe he made them up but you know to me it seems like an honest conjecture to be like you know, he knew something about something in him knew this was special and hung on to it. Um, uh, I don't 
make things up. Everything is comes from something. Everything is sourced from somewhere. And I do slip into free and direct every now and then, particularly in the second part when it's like lots of Jews arguing with each other because I'm like, I know what this is like. But it's always <laughs> stuff that they it's always stuff that they said later in interviews, for example, or that, you know, they is in a journal somewhere or a transcript of a talk. It's I'm always like the thoughts that I put in their heads are always paraphrased from something they have said they have they were thinking. You know, it does that make sense? Um, Absolutely. Um, I, rem I remember the moment where I really had to make that choice that I was like, because sometimes, sometimes, you know, there's like a, there's like a gray area you can get into that feels really good to write. Cause you could be like, I'm going to uncork all my lyricism here, but it, <laughs> but it just like, in order to do that, you have to start making stuff up. It's like, I'm going to write the way Tim O'Brien does. And it's like, yeah, but actually everything in the things they carried is fictional. Like, like all the stuff about whether it's fictional or not is, is BS. He doesn't even have a daughter. Like that whole book is made up. Do you know what I mean? So it's like, uh, um, uh, and it was a part where, okay. So when they're starting the Moscow Art Theater, they started this kind of summer camp in this town called Pushkino in a barn. Uh, every one of these theater companies is always like, we're going to go away to a barn for the summer and train. <laughs> and uh, in this book and um, a Russian Orthodox priest says a prayer over that blesses their first rehearsal. And I looked up Russian Orthodox prayers to be like, well, what would this prayer have likely been? And I put it in there, you know, it started with a prayer and I did the old, the, everyone, every cheap nonfiction person's favorite trick, perhaps. Uh, it's, uh, <laughs> it began with a prayer, perhaps. And then, you know, it was in italics and it was all this stuff about God and it just felt really good. And then I was like, this is horseshit. I have no evidence. I mean, for all I know, he just like threw some water on the stage and then was like, <laughs> see ya and went back to Moscow. Like, I just don't know anything about this. And so that got cut. Um, uh, and that was when I realized that, you know, you have to be really restrained about that stuff because um, the temptation is there. I mean, the temptation is there, uh, uh, especially if you're someone who loves fiction as I do. And so you have to be really rigorous. And then in my case, I also hired a fact checker. And every time she was like, oh, actually, you know, it, it, luckily I've been rigorous enough that there were, there were, I think there was maybe one moment where I had done that sort of thing. But a lot of it was like, you know, this date is wrong or, or, you know, you've accidentally plagiarized here. You need to rewrite that <laughs> section or whatever. I mean, she, um, uh, uh, but you know, I, I really wanted to be very careful about that. Um, because I think the reader can tell when you're kind of fudging that stuff and then you start to lose their faith. Um, you start to lose their trust and it's very hard to get that back once you lose it. And um, this book is going to be, is weighing in and intervening on some debates that have been raging for a hundred years now. And in order for me to, I, I wanted to deal with those fairly and in a way where I had earned the reader's trust and not betrayed it. And so it was really important to me to be as rigorous as possible with that while also allowing kind of literary flourishes when they fit the facts. Does that restraint that you're talking about feel related to performing for you in a way that's like either sticking to what is written or trying to be faithful to a direction? Does that, is there a relation there or is it a different kind of impulse and a different kind of making? Mm. That's interesting because of course, when you're, you know, sticking to the lines as written or, you know, as a, uh, you're the directors told you to cross or, you know, whatever it is, um, 
you're not inventing language there. You know, you're not inventing something from scratch or making something out of these materials. But I will say that uh, one thing that I think comes out of my background as a director is just like deeply valuing uh, conceptual rigor. <laughs> you know, that like mm-hmm. as a director, it's always like, what are the rules of this play? What are the rules of this production? Those are the early conversations you're happening, you're having with your designers. What are the rules of this world? How does it work? And how are we going to realize that and the themes and the set and the costumes, and the lights and blah, 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 blah. And so I think about that all the time as a reader and writer as well. Like, what are the rules of this piece? you know, and then really obeying those. And I probably get a little judgmental as a reader when I feel like a writer's not obeying their work's internal rules or logic. I probably should be a little chiller about that in other people's work, but still be as hard on myself (laughs) about it. That's one of the, the first things that they told me when I started studying theater was you'll never be able to just enjoy a play ever again, because you'll constantly be thinking about those things. Um, and it's true. No one is harder. No one is harder on place than people who work at theater. It is amazing. It is amazing. The things, you know, um, people in theater get very mad at reviews that have a certain meanness or stark to them. And then you always want to be like, yeah, but I've heard the way you talk about other people's work privately. It's much, much, much worse than this. Doesn't sound like writers at all. No, I know. Yeah. Like you called this person a fraud to my face, like (laughs) while we were having coffee. And now you're talking about how this review was too mean to them, but you think they're a fraud, you know? Because we're all scared. We're all scared. Exactly. Exactly. I wanted to talk about this moment um, that you mentioned, Tennessee Williams telling um, Elia Kazan, not all art exists to make a point. Sometimes art's job is to poetically dramatize a truth about the human condition. And I was wondering if, if you can think of any writers or actors who are doing that today. Well, I mean, I actually have a piece going up tomorrow. Well, tomorrow, this will, by the time this, when does this, I don't know when this airs, but it'll Thursday. Okay, great. So I have a piece going up yesterday uh, um, about Iris Murdoch. And I think that's Iris oh Murdoch's my God, big thing. Wow. You know, I think, I think Murdoch, um, one of the things that I love about her is that she is really not making points. She's like dramatizing this situation. She is very trusting of the reader's ability to kind of find their way within it. Um, uh, so I think of her doing that a lot. Um, writers today, I mean... Is Melanie Finn making points in her work? Oh, I don't my, God. oh my God. I mean, like, okay. I have to like, take a moment. Whew, I mean, pass I, out. I, oh yeah, God. I mean, the hair, the hair to me uh, is dramatizing a problem, the, the problem of, you know, being a woman in the mm-hmm. second half of the 20th century. It is mm-hmm. not trying to like, make points about things you know mm-hmm. what I mean? and it's doing it through this thriller i mean she's i don't know the hair is that, amazing i would say the hair is the closest she comes to making a point um yes. yeah that yeah her 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 other books i would say are, are closer to to what uh tennessee williams is talking about there um melanie finn think, come on know, come on the podcast yeah melanie finn you should go on the podcast Absolutely. <laughs> um and you know i think like um Baldwin's James Baldwin's Another Country, which is one of his later sort of big, impossible, epic, beautiful novels, is a is a perfect example of another one where like each of those situations, you know, he that he stages within that. He has this kind of infinite sim- sympathy within it that's really um fascinating because some of the characters are doing horrible, horrible things in that book. Um and he's not like making a point about love or interracial relationships or gay relationships. Like he's not, he's not arguing anything about them. He's dramatizing these really complicated situations. Mm. I do think that that, I don't think, I don't need every writing 
how do I put this? I don't need everyone to be writing the kinds of things that Tennessee Williams is talking about. Like I love Tennessee no, Williams and no, I love no. Clifford Odets, you know, but I do right. feel in our current moment, the needing to make the point thing is very ascendant right now. Mm -hmm. And so I want to hold on to and advocate for like, wouldn't it be great to have also this other thing, this other thing that art can do that's really important and, and interesting and complicated. Let's also hold a space mm -hmm. for that, I mm -hmm. guess is how I feel about it. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. You had a piece, it was an article about the five best method performances. And one oh, of them, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was uh, in the Hollywood reporter. The, one of them was um, Olivia Coleman in the lost daughter. Right. Yes, that was being as provocative as possible with that one. Wow, of course, Olivia, because uh, <laughs> Olivia. I mean, that was that was sort of the point of including her because Olivia Coleman's not a method actor, right? You know, yeah. she's she's um, trained at the Old Vic, which is a classic. She's trained in classic British technique, classical British technique, um, which is highly external. Um, and she got her start as a sketch comedy actor. You know, her early days that. on TV. It's a sketch comedy on TV. Um, you know, she has a small role in Hot Fuzz back when she was a comedy actor. Yeah. Um, what makes <laughs> me think it was murder? Anyway, um, <laughs> the kind of role she's playing in The Lost Daughter and the fact that we think that's a good performance is only possible because of the method revolution. It's only I possible. That was so interesting. Yeah. That, that was we, such an interesting would... point for you to make. Oh, thank you. Yeah, because it's such a cryptic, weird performance and she does not care about the audience liking her and you know there's there's a mysterious thing wrong with that character that's never fully revealed or explained um and all that stuff comes out of the method i mean all that stuff there's a straight line from marlon brando in a streetcar named desire to that performance i feel like and i feel like she's doing what tennessee williams is talking about there yeah. um yeah i mean the lost daughter is not like making a point about motherhood <laughs> You know what I mean? Right. Uh, um, uh, it, it, it's not, you know, that that that's a woman who makes a bunch of decisions that I think if a friend of yours was making, you wouldn't approve of, right. you know, but um, um, but it also there's not a lot of judgment of her in that movie. It just right. observes her. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what I loved so much about that that mm -hmm. film. You know, it's just the way it just makes you observe her and then have your own experience of what she's doing, which is often strange and and not great from an ethical <laughs> perspective. Right. There's something really exciting about getting to the end of the book and encountering more names that I was just frankly more familiar with and had seen more of their work because even though I've heard of John Garfield, I don't think I've seen a single one of those movies, Isaac. And in uh, a lot of those, I know, I know that's, a, that's your guy, but I haven't. Uh, so when you get to the De Niro section of the book towards the very end, it was so interesting because it seemed very closely tied to the kind of point that the next chapter makes or, or potentially posits about, the marketplace that we're in right now being a different kind of reality for actors, a different kind of reality for mm -hmm. acting instruction related to the revolution in upper education and arts programs and so forth. And it made me look at what De Niro does as related to publicity in a way that I hadn't ever thought of prior, potentially, as far as just the rigor or the kind of uh, extremity of some of the famous roles or mm -hmm. approaches being related to being able to tell a quick story in a, in a junket or whatever. Right. And obviously I'm not, I'm not cynical enough to say that's the full reason why he's doing it, but 
I was wondering if that is, if, if, if that kind of connection is one you think that younger actors today are making maybe even unconsciously and that drives some of the types of approaches we're seeing in like the Jared Leto's or something like that. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I want to be clear. I think that for the most part up through Raging Bull, De Niro is pioneering his own sort of full emerges, immersion acting technique where, you know, he's really going to live the life of the kid. Not, not, he's going to study the behavioral habits of the character. He's going to interview people like the character. He's going to learn the character's accent. He's going to learn the character's physical habits. If the character plays baseball, he's going to learn how to play baseball. If the character's a boxer, he's going to learn how to box. He's going to rewrite the script to make it truer to the character. He's going to, you know, a lot of the stuff that we know today of him ad-libbing uh, on camera is actually stuff he had written off camera and then brought in. So like uh, you talking to me, the the mirror scene in Taxi Driver, uh, it first appears in a screenplay, in his copy of the screenplay, there's a little note written next to it that says mirror thing here, question mark. And that's the you talking to me scene. So, you know, um, I think there's a real sincere attempt to pioneer uh, the, uh, truthful behavior, a new way, a new approach to truthful behavior on camera. I think after Raging Bull, it becomes part of the PR mechanism of Hollywood, not even always for him, because after Raging Bull, he's also often seeking out roles where he's like playing a more normal person. It seems like he kind of, you know, is trying some different comedy, you know, he's trying different things after that. Um, and in fact, in the 70s, he's very, very private about almost every aspect of his life and his methods and his career. We only really know this stuff because he donated all of his papers to the Ransom Center. And so you can go there and, and you can read his screenplays and his notes and how he did this stuff. Um, there's a wonderful scholar named R. Colin Tate, whose dissertation was very important for this book because he, in fact, went through and, and did all that stuff. Uh, and uh, COVID had meant that I couldn't actually go look for oh, papers on my own. And so I, you know, I called Colin and Colin gave me his dissertation. I looked in, he, you know, answered a bunch of questions for me. And anyway, uh, very grateful to him. Thank you, Colin. Uh, but, the, uh, but after that, after once De Niro wins an Oscar for Raging Bull and once after that, it's like this is maybe the greatest performance on camera. This is maybe the greatest actor of all living actor today. That's how he's being talked about. Um, just the influence of it cannot be overstated. Just like the influence of On the Waterfront gave us a generation of actors who moved to New York and wanted to mumble all the time. You know, uh, Raging Bull really convinced actors that good acting involved that kind of process, that kind of changing your body, learning the behavior and doing all those things. And then it just gets hoovered up into the PR Oscar campaign juggernaut. And, you know, that's how you get um, everyone talking about, yeah, you know, Lady Gaga saying I spoke an Italian accent for 18 months or Jared Leto being like, I ate spiders and <laughs> had sex with a pig or whatever it is he does for his parts. You know, he's drinking human blood to become a vampire and Morpheus or, you know, like, like, you know, it's, it's all that stuff. Um, and even you know, cl classic method actors like Eli Wallach were complaining about that, that very thing by the, by like 1990, there's an interview that I quote in the book with Eli Wallach, where he's like, Robert De Niro is a brilliant actor. He does not need to go spend six months in a coma ward. That's such a great yeah. quote. Prepare yeah. for awakenings, but yeah. that's where the PR attention is now. So, you know, um, so yeah, I, I do think that it just, everything, <laughs> once Reagan gets elected, just it, slowly but surely, everything gets co-opted by capitalism. <laughs> I mean, I really think that's sort of, I mean, that's the story of America. And so that becomes the story of the, of the method as well. Mm.
that kind of collapse feels so true to our current, the collapse of understanding of what the method is, the fact that someone like me, who's, you know, vaguely interested in this stuff and feels like, you know, these names are familiar, although unlike YouTube, never studied it. It's like, I had never even heard of the system prior to reading this book that was yeah. so divorced from my understanding of what the method is. And if you would have asked me cold, I would have given the answer that probably a lot of people wouldn't say, I don't know, Dan day Lewis. And it's really so off base. It's kind of, it's staggering after going through all the movements of the system over in Russia into kind of how it comes over to our continent here to get to the end of the book and kind of see that absolute collapse of time and understanding is it's kind of crushing. It really is. <laughs> well, the thing the thank thank you for saying that. I mean, I mean, the thing that most people think the method is, which is this external process that I, I just talked about with De Niro or what Daniel Day Lewis that, you know, you build a bark canoe to learn how to be in last of the Mohicans or whatever. Um, does not appear on the book until like page 375, you know, and right. it's sort of very deliberate that I'm not saying, you know, because I wanted to talk about it in the moment that it historically appears, right? That was part of the kind of telling the story of the method as a biography is like, well, this thing doesn't arise till then. So I'm not really going to talk about it till then. Um, instead, I'm going to talk about this sort of early stuff that the reader probably doesn't know about. I mean, I didn't know a heck of a lot about the system. And I was a drama major in college. You know, I, I mean, I, I knew a little bit about it. I knew a little bit about Stanislavski. I mean, um, I, I knew some stuff. I mean, obviously, I knew some stuff about this story before I started writing it or working on the proposal, or I never would have had the idea. But I mean, there's a lot of it that I didn't know either. And so part of it was my just trying to be like, you know, what, what, what do I wish I had known about this story? Like, what, what do I wish I had learned in college about this story? What, what do I wish I knew about it? And then I could impart that to um, the reader. One of the fun things about doing a nonfiction book off proposal is that as opposed to a full book that you turn in is that you're still discovering all sorts of stuff while you're writing it and so the excitement of discovery gets kind of baked into the prose itself almost like the emotions in the method you know that you call up it gets baked into the prose itself so like sometimes I think you can feel I hope you can feel in the book there's times where it's like I'm super enthusiastic about something it's like can you believe this thing isn't that fucking crazy <laughs> you know I'm not saying that but like hopefully it's in the prose that I'm like isn't this fucking nuts you know what I mean and so hopefully that kind of translates one of those moments that I wanted to bring up, um, I think, at least it was that for me, was Stella Adler goes and she goes to Stanislavski's uh, where he's staying in, in Paris, right? And um, Isn't that crazy? And she's completely silent. Everyone is freaking out around him. They can't believe they're in front of him. Finally, he addresses her, you know, talk to me, let's talk. And they go out and take a walk. And she tells him all the things she hates about it. Cause she's this, you know, she came up in the Yiddish theater and she's, she's completely trained differently. She has different skills and talents and it's killing her to, to learn the method, the way that Strasbourg is laying it out. And he, and he kind of says, Oh no, no, no. You don't have to worry about effective memory. That's nothing. Don't yeah. leave that aside. Here's what's important. And he lays it out for her and it completely fucking changes everything for her. She spends a month with him. I'm telling this for our, our listeners. Cause it is, so wild so she spends a month with him she takes all these notes she has these diagrams she gets from him she brings it back now she knows exactly what the method is everyone listen to her this is what Stanislavski meant so then they asked Stanislavski about it and he says he wasted a month on her 
he called her hysterical, right? He, he said, yeah, yeah he, he completely discounted it. Um, and it was so groundbreaking for her. It changed everything. She became Stella Adler, right? This amazing teacher, Marlon Brando's teacher. And Stanislavski just Robert kind of- Robert De Niro's teacher. Robert De Niro's teacher, yes. Yeah. And Stanislavski just shat all I over it. it nothing to him, and nothing to him. And then you make the point that like, Stanislavski, this was maybe one of the most heartbreaking things is that he tailored, much as Strasbourg seemed to do, he tailored his feedback for each actor. Um, and he might not have been able to talk about effective memory because of what was going on in Russia. Like he might've, yeah. that might've been banned. And so he had to sort of shift it out of necessity. And it's just, it's like, oh my God, it's just like, I, I, you know, I, I was stunned. I was, well, thank you so much. I mean, you know, I knew the story of Stella Adler going to Paris. There's a like most, you know, if you've studied American theater history, that's like an important, you know, story of, 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 of American theater. But I didn't know about Stanislavski's, um, version of the story until I found this, you know, this, someone recommended I check out that book, uh, Actors Without Makeup, I think it's called, which is a series of interviews with various actors and Stanislavski tells that story. I'm like, what, wait, what? Um, and then, you know, the even funnier thing though, is that, you know, there's a sort of lady doth protest too much about that version of the story as well, because he actually writes Stella Adler as a character, uh, into one of his books about acting. He tells that story again. He's oh like an American actress once did this thing and blah, 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 blah. So clearly it, it did stay with him. It did yeah. affect him on some level. Yeah. Um, and um, yeah, it's really weird. You know, I, I was a religion minor in college and, and I think a lot about this is like a religious schism. You know, it's like the, well, uh, is it, I mean, and really it is sort of like a Catholic versus Protestant thing of like, is it faith that matters or is it deeds, right? Is it what you think or what you do? Which one of those things matters? And this is one of the, but unlike the Christians, Stella Adler could just be like, well, I'm actually going to go uh, hang out with Jesus for a month and ask him what he <laughs> thinks of all this and then come back. Like, you know, the history of religion would probably be a little bit easier if they could have done that. <laughs> so she just goes and hangs out with him and she brings back this whole thing. Um, but yes, you know, Stanislavski, he would tailor the acting instruction to the student and she was very good at emotion. So he probably did say something like, you don't have to worry. You don't, you don't have to worry yeah. about emotion. You don't have to worry about emotion. But the other thing is that, you know, the thing that I was struck by in that story is there's the mysterious doctor who's with him in Paris for his right. health. Right. And at this point, Stanislavski is one of the most culturally important figures in Stalin's Russia uh, at the point that this is happening. You know, I mean, he really is unbelievably important and um uh the range of acceptable ideas is getting narrow and narrower every day and harold clerman tells a version of the story stella adler's then uh partner eventually husband eventually ex-husband a bit close friend and all this other stuff harold clerman is there at the first meeting and he keeps being like so stanislavski what do you think about that Stalin guy? And Stanislavski oh, kind of looking around God. and being like, Ixnay on the Allen stay. Um, uh, and so I keep wondering about, you know, there's that third person who's just around his doctor who's there for his right. health. And it's like, you know, he, he was worried. We know from stuff that he's written that he was worried about being monitored all the time. So um, it's very unclear. You know, you have this schism that lies at the heart of American acting instruction between Strasbourg and Adler. Well, I think we're both right about a lot of things. You yeah. Know? Actually. And definitely. And um, 
it turns out that you can actually go back to God or Jesus or whatever and ask him what he thinks about it. And then you can still have a schism over it. Like it's yeah. just a wild, you know, it's, it's really wild. Um, I'm, I'm glad that you enjoyed that part of the story so much because it is the literal, like, you know, if you do a pyramid plot diagram of the book, it's the literal climax of the book. It comes halfway through. It's the point of no return for the, for the method itself. And uh, I just think it's so wild. And I also think it's really wild that, you know, I found this interview that Strasberg gave a biographer of another character in the book, um, 20 years, 30 years later. And he's like, Stella Adler did not understand what Stanislavski was telling her. It's like, <laughs> well, were you there? How do you, how do you know that you weren't there? You were in the Catskills resort rehearsing a play. <laughs> like, how do you, how do you know that? You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. It's I, I, uh, I, I, I mentioned earlier that I had studied at Lee Strasberg when yeah. I, in my youth, I was 20 and, um, all in the New exercise York? In, New in, in New York, New in New York. Um, did you do all over sensation? No. What is that? The one, the one where you have to like experience being hot or cold or having water drip on your face. Without I don't remember doing that one. But I remember we did like the improv part was great. It was really fun. Um, but we did a lot of like relaxing into pain or discomfort exercises. Mm -hmm. Um, and I had never done anything like that before. Uh, and I was terrible at it. I, I think looking back, I think, I think I was seeking acting out as a way of, um, like safely having emotions. Cause that wasn't really like, okay. In my upbringing and which, you know, don't do that. I, don't I think that's acting. why a lot of people grab, gravitate towards, you think? to acting when they're kids. Mm. Yeah. I mean, mm. that was not, I was a very emotional child. That was not my problem, but, the, but, but I think, I think for a lot of, I think for a lot of, um, uh, although I was scared of my emotions because I couldn't control them. So, I mean, that's yeah. part of it, but, but yeah. I either coming from coming from either end, it's like, you know, a lot of those actors of the new Hollywood movement, like Gene Hackman and Al Pacino and Robert De Niro and stuff, you know, one of the things that a lot of people don't know about them is that they're actually all of them pretty shy. Like a mm. lot of the actors that period are very shy. And in the inside the actor studio with Gene Hackman, he talks about it. He's like, I think almost every good actor is actually at heart a kind of shy person, you know? Um, so I do think it's something that those of us who have sort of big emotional questions and things we don't know how to do, what to do with our emotions. It, it's a really, it, it, you can go into it. And for some people, I think it, that's actually healthy and really helpful. And for others of us, it is, it is less so. I <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, you know, like there's a lot of stuff that I use to this day that I learned there. Um, you know, like the, the, the notion of relaxing into discomfort is huge. Um, and I think hugely helpful. Um, and we did that activity where you walk towards each other and you say the same thing to each other until something changes. <laughs> And what yeah, changed for yeah. me was that I found myself towering over my partner and screaming into her face. <laughs> I, I don't, I, you know, things were coming up for me when I was there. Um, That's what it's supposed to do, man. Yeah. It's supposed to and make then, the things come up for you. And it did. And they, they had us prepare a scene, me and this guy who I'd never, you know, really talked to. And we prepared the scene and we sat on the stage and they were like, no, you're not ready yet. And we weren't to the point of relaxation where we could start the scene. And we never got there and I never got to do the scene. <laughs> wow. 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 That's amazing. So they were using you as like an object lesson for. Oh, while. totally. Yeah. Like I could do no, wait, certain when you, when things, you were, but not other When you other were relaxing, things. were you doing the thing where you were sitting in the chair and you were like breathing in and out and then you would like flop your arms or whatever? Were you doing that? Some that of that, too? some of that. And then they wanted you, any emotion you had, you had to, you know, like what was coming yeah. up, you had to express it physically. Right. And 
Um, so I ended up like screaming fuck at the top of my lungs in this quiet theater. No one reacted. So it was just like really loud fuck. And then silence, like not even my teacher. And I think my scene partner was like, fucking just, can you just fucking relax your shoulders so we can do this? Chill the fuck out. (laughs) I just like, I was like, I don't think I was like, there's something else I want that I don't think I'm getting here. Although it was a very short time, who knows, but you know, it, it, there was some really Were you writing things. already by that point? Yeah, I was already writing. And so that's what I decided. I would go back and, and keep doing that. Um, yeah, I mean, I do think that some of these exercises or ways of thinking that come out of these various, you know, versions, adaptations of Stanislavski in America, because there's a lot of difference between, for example, Strasberg and Adler, but they both have a lot of it. I, I think they're adaptable to other forms of creativity. I mean, um, my Maria Irene Fornes, who is a very important experimental playwright and teacher of playwriting, uh, in the second half of the 20th century. Study with Strasberg would use his, his exercises uh, in her playwriting class. You know, she would use method exercises in playwriting. And like I said, I think all of Stella Adler's stuff about script analysis is super important. So I think, I think there, and I think, you know, one of the things that I was really struck by, probably in part because I started hosting working it around the time that I was working on the book, which is about the creative process, is like, how great Stanislavski's ideas about creativity are and how useful, like what a useful framework they provide um, that I found. And I found that very helpful while trying to be creative enough to write, while trying to become the the artist that could write this book, which I don't think I was when I started writing it. Um, In a way, it was sort of like being able to write it about him and his ideas was really helpful because I had, then I got to learn all of those ideas and, and use them. Some of which probably don't even make their way, aren't even in the book, but they're, you know, in my, in my they're process. in the background of, yeah. yeah i mean one of them um evgeny vaktangov who was one of stanislavski's disciples and probably would have succeeded him as the head of the moscow Art theater but he died of stomach cancer in the 19 teens um he had this great adage that i think about all the time that uh the purpose of today's rehearsal is to prepare for tomorrow's rehearsal oh like, wow all you need to do is get enough done that your subconscious can do its work in between this rehearsal and the next rehearsal, right? And then that's what you do at the next rehearsal. And I started to think of my writing days like that, right? It's like, it's not about a word target. It's about like getting to the point where you've stimulated your subconscious enough and exhausted what your conscious mind can do. And then you're just going to like do other things so your subconscious can kind of start to knit these pieces together. And then the next morning, you're going to start over and do that again. You know, um, yeah. I found that really helpful because, you know, you know, there's days when you write, 75 words Mm -hmm. or you know there's days where you sit there and you write 75 words there's days when I mean I had one I will admit I had one insanely productive day where I wrote like thousands of words (gasps) and then couldn't write for like two it's like I broke a fuse like a fuse burst um uh but you know like I think that's because you start anyway I found that I found that whole thing really helpful for for being forgiving of myself for like getting done what I could Mm-hmm. get done as opposed to like oh well I didn't write 1500 words today or whatever I'm, mm-hmm. I'm a failure this book will never be done <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean I think a lot of it is so adaptable to writing I mean as far as the system I mean even the thing with Stanislavski early on taking attendance being dead serious about showing up on time yeah. no divas and yet that kind of strict stringent approach allowing for 
the real work to be done. That that kind of understanding that uh, a kind of almost military, like, all right, you're going to be here. You're going to work. You're not going to be a problem, <laughs> but it's also going to hear us saying that to ourselves. Yeah. We're about to write. You're going to be yeah. here. You're going to work and you're not going to be a problem. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, like we're all, we're all parents and we all have yeah. jobs, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, you don't, we don't, I don't know. I mean, there were times writing this book where like I had a lot of free reign in my day of when I was going to write, but there, sure. there were many times where I did not. And it's like, it's exactly that thing. It's like, this is a job. Like I was right. being paid money to write yeah. this book. You mm-hmm. know what I right. mean? And it's mm-hmm. like, like it, it's all these other wonderful creative things, but it's a job and taking it seriously as a job, I think actually does help enable the writing, you know, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. Ruman told me this thing once. I mean, he said it on working and I, so I don't think this isn't a private thing. You know, Ruman Alam said this thing where he was like, I didn't write it. I didn't, I I didn't really become a writer until I had kids. Like I didn't really become a writer until I had those constraints in my schedule and I had stuff I needed to do. And, and I, and I think there's something to that of like, it forces you, I'm not saying that you have to have kids to be a writer. That's not what I'm saying. But like, no, that's what you that, are saying. That, that is what I'm saying. Please, please, please come after me for this. Cosign. Yeah. No, but but I'm just saying it's like there is something about like, okay, I have three hours this week that I'm able to write because yep. of all this other stuff I've got going on. Mm-hmm. All right. I'm gonna like make notes into my notes app when I can, but then when I sit right. down, I better be it, it's it's all systems go. Like this is a job, and this yeah. is when I have to do this to get this done. I do think that's healthy. Totally. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And that kind of, um, it seems like that kind of directness and simplicity is, is is characteristic of the system in a way that is less characteristic of the method and later adaptations and the way it kind of tendrilled out in a way that really made those, the early Stanislavski pages so fascinating because because of the aphoristic quality to some of the, the adages and, 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 and kind of the clean line of thinking um, and application, but also just the fact that as Lindsay said before, it's like there was such clarity of thought and yet there was so like so much dissent among the, the, the people trying to enact these very clear yeah. ideas and, you know, great intentions and great thinking really meant little. It still took so much effort by so many people for these ideas to kind of become what they did. Yeah, totally. And I think part of that is, you know, um, a lot of people felt that 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 Stanislavski's clarity and his professionalism and all those other things were ruined by his development of the system. Because a lot of that stuff predates the system or comes from the early days when he's sort of trying to figure out what he called a grammar of acting. what he's really trying to figure out for those of you who haven't read the book is, you know, how you can be inspired on demand. That's really what he's trying to figure yeah. out. And it leads night after this night. whole other thing night after night at 8 PM when you have to walk on stage. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, because he started turning his rehearsal rooms into an experimental theater lab while trying to rehearse plays, you know, one of the plays in the book, he rehearses for three years. I mean, that's, that's, that's bonkers. You know, that. Yeah. I mean, I mean, the, 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 by the 19 teens, the Moscow Art Theater is barely producing any premieres because he sort of has lost his ability to do that to some extent. Um, so I do think though, that he has another idea on top of that, which is really helpful, which is 
that, you know, in creating these theater studios, he creates a space for experimentation outside the rehearsal room so that when he needs to do his job, I mean, that's, that was the idea. It didn't work out that way, but the idea was correct, which is like, if you create a space, when you are experimenting for us, it would be daily pages or, you know, whatever it is, right. There's a space where you can experiment with your process so that you can take those tools when you need to actually deliver on something then you're just delivering, you know, then you're just working. You know what I mean? Um, I, I think that was a pretty clever idea. And with the group, the group had the same thing. They had a period of time to train together and to experiment. And then they would get down to brass tacks and be like, okay, it's time to apply all this stuff we've figured out to the problems of this specific play. And so that interrelationship between process and product, or I guess between, you know, the, ex the experimentation necessary to keep yourself alive and reinvented as a creative artist. And then the actual work you have to do, I think is one of the tensions that is running through this book with every single character. They're not always, and they often don't know how to manage it. The person who is really brilliant at managing it was Aaliyah Kazan. And that's why Aaliyah Kazan becomes, I mean, he's this is the only time in the 20th century that this, this happened. He's both the best and most important film and theater director simultaneously for a few years there like no one's ever accomplished that and I think part of that is because he was so ambitious and so pragmatic that even though he loved all this experimentation stuff like all he, he there was always a part of him that was able to be like okay that's enough of that let's get to work you know he was always able to get to get back to that and to not get lost in cloud cuckoo land in the realm of ideas you know? <laughs> yeah I had no idea how close tied he was to all of that i never yeah. knew yeah it's wild i mean he's sort of the sun you know yeah. he's like the, the group births the sun that then eclipses all yeah them. totally so. yeah and i also didn't know what a mess strasburg was i mean i i went to strasburg because um i heard claire dane studied there <laughs> yeah hell yeah <laughs> and who can cry like claire danes that's nobody. right nobody and that's that's what i wanted i was like i want to cry like that in front of people that full body <laughs> Yes, goldfish like gasping for air. <laughs> yes, I mean she's an amazing crier. I mean all of this is complimentary. She's an amazing actor, yes. an amazing crier. Yes. Yeah, I mean it's it's weird because it's like you know you'll read these interviews with her. I interview people who knew Strasburg, right? You know, and they'll say things like, "Oh, I loved him. He was like a father to me. You know, he really unlocked this thing about me. I'll always be devoted to him." I mean, of course, he was an incredibly unpleasant person and very difficult to get along with. Just but, like a weirdo, like a total yeah. blank faced weirdo yes he had he had trouble expressing emotions other than rage he had trouble making eye contact with people there's a quote in the book where i say where he says that he doesn't understand why people say hello and goodbye and <laughs> that's that goodbye right. is the dumbest thing he's ever heard in his life yeah. um uh he, yeah he was prone to rage he, he would he would he was unbelievably loquacious once he got started talking he would just talk and talk and talk and talk, and talk. but he could also just like you know when they would have parties at his ha at his apartment he would just like sit there silently or he would watch the mets on tv because oh he was a baseball obsessive i love this guy um, <laughs> Higgs, Higgs is like life goals. Life yeah, exactly. goals. Higgs is like, man, I get it now. I get it. <laughs> um, but people loved him. I mean, I mean, lots of people loved him and were intensely devoted to him. In a part of that's like Ellen Burstyn. Ellen oh Burstyn. My God. Yeah, yeah. The Ellen best. Burstyn, uh, who's an amazing actor, yeah. and you know, saved the actor studio after his death, and also didn't know that co-president of it. Yeah, um, you know. 
yeah, yeah. I mean, it's amazing how devoted people were to them. And I think it's, it's a couple things. I mean, I think for the people who locked into what he was doing and for who it worked for, and it was healthy and, you know, like, cause there's good stuff and bad stuff that came yeah. out of Strasbourg. So just to isolate the good stuff. I mean, I think he really did unlock something in the people that it worked for that they could not get anywhere mm-hmm. else. And I think that he, they saw his genius his particular genius in, in a way that was deeply, that really resonated with them in a way that was really intense. Mm-hmm. And he did become almost like a father to them. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there's also like, there's some Strasbourg people where you talk to them and you're like, is this a cult? You know, like sometimes, know. <laughs> sometimes the way they, they definitely him, the way they venerate him, you're like, Oh yeah, it's interesting. You know? Yeah. I um, mean, like I, I found myself being like, I would have loved to sit there and do my piece for him and get feedback from him. But on the same token, I would have, gone and killed myself after <laughs> you know like it just sounds like he could yeah. see things in people that that were tough to see right if yeah if i mean you. he just had this laser eye for inauthenticity yes. and yes. if you were doing something inauthentic he would just zero in on it and he would just talk and he would sometimes yell and he would you know if you contradicted him here you you know, he didn't think you were understanding it. He could get really mad at you. Mm-hmm. I mean, James Dean, he was so brutal to James Dean. The <laughs> one time James Dean presented a solo piece at the actor studio, he was so brutal to James Dean that James Dean never did it again. Uh, he appeared in other people's work, but he never appeared as the main focus of Strasbourg again. And he actually almost left the actor studio and had to be talked back wow. into, uh, into going. <laughs> I mean, it's just, he's just, yeah, he was really brutal. I mean, I sort of think like we've all been through a tough workshop. So we have mm-hmm. some, I mean, all three of us, I'm sure have been through tough workshops. And so we have some idea of what's, what that's like, but like, I went to the university of Minnesota. So like my tough workshops were passive aggressive. <laughs> they were not someone being like, I mean, you know, Stella Adler was also really brutal to people. You know, yeah. I've heard that recording of her being like, you went back to the filth, the crap of showing your acting, showing your work is worse than being a whore. I mean, I never got treated like that in workshop, right? I, I just got treated like, well, you know, with all the, um, I mean, mixed metaphors, it's hard to really understand what, uh, what this oh, passage God. is doing. Oh, uh... God damn it. Oh, I don't know which, which is worse. They're both awful. I don't, I'm, I, they're both awful. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I was very lucky to study with Charles Baxter at the University of oh, Minnesota, yeah. who had this incredibly rigorous way of doing workshop that was, it was really built around trying to get you constructive feedback without the BS. Mm-hmm. But, you know, people, it'll still come out and it's still something you care about deeply. And so, you know, it's still really upsetting. And so, uh, even after those workshops, uh, uh, my my best friend in the program, Sally Franson, and I would be like, we're going to go. There was a bar we went to after a huge time. <laughs> just like had drinks because it was, it was just too much. Definitely too much. Oh. He would have whoever was being workshopped had to bring in snacks. Uh, that was the deal because you didn't have to read the thing being workshopped because you wrote it. So instead you had time you had to get to spend snacks. That time making Yeah. And they got everyone put their emotional anxiety about being workshopped into the snacks so the snacks just got more and more elaborate and beautiful (laughs) and complicated you know yeah yeah it just like it just went on and on and on they got very very elaborate and at the end someone brought in like wine and cheese for their final workshop and he was like I don't know if drinking in this class is a good idea It was probably by design, you know, like he just probably wanted to eat yeah. really well. Really great. Yeah. We're I made a delicious you, Charles olive Baxter. oil cake. Yeah. Ooh, Ooh, you did? Okay. 
Drop the you. recipe, Isaac. And some, someone, uh, someone, um, yeah. Do you have a Patreon? We could, we could be we a do. patron gift. Now we, we just do. started oh, for this. Yeah. Oh, okay, great. I'll send you an olive oil cake recipe. That you Thank can put you. On um, uh, we had read um, Haunting of Hill House, and so, mm-hmm. and you know, the house keeps saying, "Come home, Eleanor. Come home, Eleanor. Welcome home, Eleanor." Whatever it is. So, uh, Sally, Sally Franson uh, baked, you know, made a cake, and then in icing, it said, "Come home, Eleanor." <gasps> I love it. It was amazing. It was That's amazing. so good. So she won her workshop. She won her workshop. No need to She's to also look an at amazing this. writer. She's an amazing writer. Anyway. Come on the pod, Sally. There yeah, come on the pod, Sally. Yeah, exactly. Isaac, I'm going to get you out on this one. Uh, All right. The, the, just the, the amount of research still is staggering to me, even after talking to you and knowing you and like, and what I'm, what I'm really curious about is, for your next project that you're going to be working on, whatever it may be. Do you feel like after writing a book like this, you have to kind of undertake the same level of intense research interviews, learning that you had to do to even be able to write the book? Or if the next project is less rigorous on that level, does it still feel good to you? Or does that kind of level of effort really like scratch an itch for you it really scratches an itch for me which i wasn't super aware of before i started writing books to be completely honest i mean i would research things as a director and stuff but you know when dan and i did the world only spins forward we interviewed 250 people yeah we went through lots of newspaper archives i went to robert altman's papers to get the to look through because he was going to make a movie of angels in america to get the file on the movie that he never made of angels in America and discovered there the screenplay that Tony Kushner wrote for Robert Allman uh, and stuff like that. You know, so we were just Dan and I, I mean, and that was so much fun because I had a buddy doing it with me and we were just like ever texting each other. Like, can you believe this crazy thing I found? Or I just interviewed Joe Mantello and he said this great thing to George. Remember when you talked to George Seawolf tomorrow to ask him about it and you you know, that sort of thing. That was awesome. Um, But that was mostly repertory. Right. And then this one was mostly research. It was a mostly like a historical research thing. And so I really have enjoyed developing those muscles to that extent on those two books. I'm hoping the next one will be a synthesis of those more. So it'll be sort of half repertorial, half that kind of research. Um, But no, it really scratches an itch for me. And I feel like it's part of what makes the job of doing history, of doing cultural history worth doing is all the shit you get to learn and becoming an authority on this stuff and just having it sort of start to live within you. I loved every time I went to an archive and, you know, got out the scanner app on my phone and started scanning, you know, transcripts of classes and stuff, you know, or the little weird things that you would find. I just love all that stuff. It's so satisfying to me. <clears throat> um, which I wish I had known earlier in my life that that was going to turn Maybe it wouldn't have been true for me 20 years ago. Do you know what I mean? I'm just saying, I wish I had known that this was something that was this pleasurable to me. Um, and, you know, um, yeah. So I think for the next one, I don't know that I want it to be something where I have to like read 200 books or, you know, whatever, <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't, I don't like, I, like I said, I mean, I'm hoping it can be a sort of more 50, 50 mix of interviewing people and that kind of work. And then the archival stuff and the research stuff. Um, but I do find all of that really, 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 it really scratches an itch. So, um, and also like, I don't know that I have like an essay collection in me in the same way that you know like I love essays I love essayists but it actually it's like and they do lots of research that's not what I'm saying but it's a totally different 
way of approaching nonfiction than what I do in either my criticism or my, you know, cultural history work. If I start thinking about writing an essay on something, suddenly I'm like, what are the 20 books I need to read to be able to write this mm. essay? And then it's like, well, that's not efficient. I'm not going to be able to pay for Iris to go to college working that way. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like, it just, it's just not on my, you know, so I, I always end up falling into these weird, deep caves on this stuff. Um, and I enjoy it. I enjoy, you know, being down there spelunking with my headlamp, trying to figure out where the hell I am. I just hope it's not, doesn't turn into like the descent where the goblins come out at the bottom of the. <laughs> and he never and came back. I never and and Thurl is the voices, of course. Thurl, Thurl, man. I mean, that was an example. Like I had to stop myself from being like, I'm going to go check out all of Thurl's albums on Spotify. And I'm going to, you know, do you know what I mean? It's just like, you just get that thing of like, maybe there's a story here, but you know. I'm sure there is. That. Oh, there's yeah. definitely a story there. Right. Yes. Yeah. I can't yeah. wait to read, read my it. forthcoming biography of <laughs> Thorol Ravenscroft, the yes. basso profundo of mid-century Disney cartoons. Yes. Uh, I love I'm it. sure I'll, I can't wait for the hefty advance I'll get on. That. <laughs> It'll be sizable. So Disney will you know. pay you. It's fine. Disney Absolutely. will pay me. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Maybe I can do a, a biopic about Thorol. Exactly. We're in. The, the, he'll have the childhood epiphany where he decides he's going to be a bass singer and then... <laughs> you know oh my god we'll come back after that yes yeah yeah, come yeah. Back. i'll come back after that i'll come back after my thorough ravenscroft <laughs> biopic there's the part where the wife has to be like you're spending too much time singing you're too <laughs> driven by your obsession of singing novelty songs for disney we have seven kids thorough <laughs> seven. Oh my god <laughs> That was great. I love him. I love this book so much. It's it's a great book. As a person who reads basically no nonfiction, <laughs> I I loved it. Yeah, I um I couldn't I couldn't get enough. I mean, it's something I've been interested in forever, and there it's shocking how little I knew about it. Um, and it was so chock full of just amazing history and facts. Amazing and, stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. I would recommend this to anybody. Yeah. I think, I think it really is a book you kind of give to anybody. Um, yeah. Cause I don't give a shit about acting and I love the book. <laughs> I love the book. But it is like, it is like the, when he starts talking about when it comes to America, it is such a part of our like American DNA. Like even 100%. if you don't care, it's like, we know these stories, we know these yes. actors. Right. So it just, and as I said, and as you were saying, like, there's so much in it that relates to what it is to be a writer or just mm -hmm. like trying to make something or like trying to change something, you know? So it's like, absolutely. Yeah. It's a great book. I can't wait for the thorough Ravenscroft biopic that we can talk to him about. <laughs> oh my God. The, the amount of research though, and the amount of notes really, Holy truly shit. no joke gave, gives me anxiety to think about. And I am not an anxious person. Like this is, it like fucks me up to think about the amount of <laughs> shit you have to like notate. Yeah. It's um, not only like keeping, like getting those sources, but then keeping track of them. Oh my God. It's yeah, no. wild. I was it's terrible like at math. that in school. Yeah. Oh God. And, no. and he's got it all. He's got like a bibliography. He's got notes. Mm -hmm. He's got. It's, it's extensive. What are you laughing about? He thinks we're talking about it like a high school paper. Yeah, man, he's got like a title page. He's got an opening paragraph. 
Oh shit, he's got a thesis sentence. Oh, man. Damn, how'd he do it? I just did it. Did it spell check? I, I just did it. And I did it once in the episode. And for some reason, I can't explain this. I have been snorting all the time when I'm laughing now. That's Ben. Have you heard Ben do that? Yes. No, is that for real? He snorts constantly. Did he always? Yes. Yeah, no, okay. and his whole family does it. His dad, his sister Cameron, they oh, his stepmom, they all that's that's like their opening salvo to laughter is and Brit's like it's she's like she's like, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> Tell Brit we'll I'm start like a ben. support, support group. group. Yeah, absolutely. Does Ben snore? Oh yeah. Do you really? Yeah. 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 Yeah, of course I do. It's terrible. <laughs> it only happens when he's facing me. Or maybe it does when he faces away, but I can't hear him. Do you punch um, him? I don't. Punch- punches me. Well, maybe because well, I I try to wake him up very gently, lovingly, but it's, it does sometimes it doesn't work. So sometimes I'll like do like the duck bill on him, you know, like the <clears throat> then that kind of works. But he doesn't remember it. Oh yeah, I can no, have I don't whole conversations it. with him, and he'll be like, "Oh, what? I don't remember that." <laughs> <laughs> okay. Do you stop when she when she wakes you up? No, I don't know. I, well, she, I wake up and she goes. I wake up and she goes. Do you not remember what happened? And I'm like, no. <laughs> that was real fear in your face. I have. I'm. I'm scared all day. Because <laughs> I know that I made some huge mistake. I just don't know what it is yet. She's like, can you believe you did this? I'm like. I don't even know what you're talking about. I don't even know what I don't know. Everyday parenting. Like kinetic sand. Kinetic sand is ruining my life. Oh God, you got to get rid of that as soon as you can. You know what? what? Sometimes I just throw stuff away and then my kids will be like, where did something go? And I'll be like, I don't know. Let's look for it. And then they don't don't know Santa Claus. Yeah, exactly. It's like, well, you know what? Next time we're at Target, we'll get more. And then you just drop it. Well, okay. Target doesn't carry it anymore. It doesn't exist. Oh. Yeah. Oh, it's poison. It turns out it's poison. It's oh, bad it's for dogs. I don't know. Your whole family. I don't know. <laughs> it's going to kill you. Oh my God. You know, I find myself like thinking so far ahead on things like that, that <sighs> I usually just say no to everything. It's a big mom. Smart. Can we, can we paint? And I'm like, no. <laughs> oh, painting uh, is a night. Any, any kind of activity honestly makes me want to kill myself. I can't. I, I am I'm not that like, mom. Oh God. Brit is so good at it. And I'm like full. Uh, I once heard know? someone say that they're not a craft mom. They're an adventure mom. And I feel Ooh. like that's what I am. I can oh, take you to the thing. Mom. Yeah. Yeah. I can like drive you to the park, the nature thing. I can do that, but I don't want to do the, I just, <sighs> I, it drives me nuts. Yeah. It stresses mess. me out. I get, I get crazy. I get really, oh man. Anyway. Yeah. I don't really have anything else. You have anything else? You're the only thing I have. Good? Okay. I'm reading Suzanne Cope's book, Power Mm. Hungry. We're talking to her. That's going to be a good one. This weekend. It's about women in the Black Panther movement who used nurturing and feeding people to um, create change. Mm -hmm. It's great so far. Um, I, Ben and I watched a really fucked up movie that I wanted to tell you about, and it's not Mm. for everyone. (laughs) It's definitely not for everyone, but it was for us. And it's called Fresh. And uh, Sebastian Stan is in it, who I really like. And the woman who was in the adaptation of Normal People. Yeah, she's going to be in the stupid bullshit where the crawdads sing. I'm sorry mm. if people like that book, but mm-hmm. I, I tried. She plays crawdad. That's what Ben said. 
but okay so fresh is like it starts out being about like i know i can't spoil it for you it starts out being about online dating i'm never gonna watch it so please spoil it but what about our listeners okay they might maybe all they need to know is it's not for everyone but it was and 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 there's some horror aspects to it and it's Mm. funny where did you watch it hulu you love hulu hulu's the best Okay, they also have like the most trash on there, but they also have like the best horror, I would say. Like I'm at the point where I haven't even heard like I have never fucking heard of this. Like I I, I, I fully I, I fully don't even know what movies are out. I don't even know, I don't know shit. I don't know anything. Every once in a while we get to watch a movie on the weekend. Mm-hmm. And so what I do is I go see what's new on Hulu because Hulu has the best movies. And then I check the Rotten Tomato score. And if it's do in you? the 80s and above, then we Oh, yeah. What if it was 78? Oh, yeah. That's fine. You round up? Yeah. Sometimes. It there... has to be under two hours. It has to be under two hours because we're old and tired. <laughs> yeah, he's got to get to the snoring as soon as he can. <laughs> Sometimes there are movies that are like 90% critic, 23% audience, and we know those also are probably not great because like a kid will probably die in that or Oof. some gruesome Thing having to do with a kid or a pet so oh, thanks we avoid those that's my tips yeah those are good tips i don't think i've watched a movie in four years i don't know <laughs> that tracks <laughs> except okay that uh, i just completely lied to you i've seen every disney movie every pixar well, yeah. movie come on cinderella 2 cinderella 3 <laughs> Mo- did you know there's a mulan 2 no well i do and i've seen it many times <laughs> my I, my kids won't i try to get parker to watch turning red did you guys yeah, watch yeah, that yeah. one yeah and he didn't like it because the characters talked to the camera it freaked him okay. out <laughs> but I, in my head i'm like well they talk about periods so you need to watch it okay right. you need to be like right. a cool good boy who's not afraid of periods okay you need to be a cool boy who's okay with periods you need yeah. to watch this movie right those now. are every girl's favorite guy okay <laughs> You don't you get go. freaked out by that stuff. Anyway, Absolutely. that's my tips. Those are Lindsay's tips. I've got no the- tips. Everybody uh, get excited about the Colorado Avalanche. And uh, that's all I got. Uh, about the what? Oh, I'm sorry. The hockey team I root for. <gasps> right. They're doing great. I'm, I'm excited. That's awesome. Yeah, it's great. Congratulations. Thank you so much. See you or talk to you next week. In a few days. Goodbye. Oh, yeah. Bye. I'm a Writer Butt is recorded by Alex Hickley and me, Lindsay Hunter, in our respective basements. Editing by Lindsay Hunter. Music by Max Loop. Yeah, yeah.